Hello. Uh, welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we have a very special um, episode today. I've got a couple of guests here who are going to help me talk about Dunning-Kruger effect and the imposter syndrome because um, they're kind of weirdly related. So just to give you a little background on the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, basically it's the idea that people who think they are very smart often are not. Like you'll give someone a task and uh, they will, um, you know, do the task and you'll ask them, how do you think you did or how good do you think you are at that thing? And then, you know, they'll look at the results later. They didn't do very well, but many people, especially if they did poorly, tend to think they did really well. And it's just this idea that we're really bad at self-assessment. Um, so this uh, David Dunning and Justin Kruger uh, at Cornell did a 1999 study called Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. Um, which is just a fancy way of saying people think they're smart, but they're not. Um, and um, there's a great uh, Bertrand Russell quote that kind of like sums this up. One of the painful things about our time is that those who feel certainty are stupid and those with any imagination and understanding are filled with doubt and indecision. Um, I know I feel that way. Um, <laughs> but you can already start to see where there's an intersection between like the Dunning-Kruger effect of, you know, thinking you're smart but not really being smart and the imposter syndrome of maybe you're actually really good at a thing but you cannot be convinced of that can start to overlap. Um, so to help me uh, talk about this are two uh, good friends of mine who have been talking about this for a while now. I've seen them give some great lectures about imposter syndrome. Um, they're sort of multi-hyphenate people who do, do lots of things, and any introduction I give them will be inadequate, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Amanda Clark Renzulli, and I am a senior digital strategist at Agency M and have been talking about imposter syndrome for about three years now. I'm Brianna Morgan. I do public health and digital strategy. I also co-founded a software company called Entire.Life that helps people live more meaningful lives. And that's more or less how I got started on imposter syndrome talks with Amanda three years ago. So yeah, go ahead and elaborate on that. Like I want uh, each of you to sort of answer, how did you end up getting interested in imposter syndrome to the point where you actually started giving talks about it? I got really mad on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> happens to the best of us. <laughs> it happens to some of us a lot. Uh, I get really agitated when I see advice about faking it till you make it. And a lot of that comes with imposter syndrome advice. And the reason that really gets to me is that it causes people to live in really inauthentic ways. Uh, it makes people get involved in posturing, uh, and it gets them into trouble, especially when you're talking about workplaces where you might be responsible for things that impact other people. So I was looking at all this advice on imposter syndrome, went on a Twitter rant or two about it, and had been talking to Amanda about it. And Amanda convinced me that I should do a talk about it at bar camp that we then wound up doing together. Sure, and just for context, Bar Camp is a uh, unconference event that happens um, well all over, but especially in Philly. Um, full disclosure: uh, everyone on this podcast has currently or in some way contributed to organizing it. But with that caveat, trust me when I say it is amazing. But Bar Camp Philly is this event where you show up in the morning and you can pretty much decide to give a talk or not give a talk, and then the day just uh, the people at the event basically come up with the talks right there on the spot, and then you have a day full of amazing talks, but this was one of them. So when Brianna and I were talking about this initially, we were at a, a happy hour and at a group of about eight people at the table. Um, I believe six 
total people said they had experienced imposter syndrome, men and women, um, and this has traditionally been uh, uh, considered a, a female problem, that um, high-achieving women experience imposter syndrome. But sitting at that table, we realized it probably affects more people than we ever thought. So when we decided to give the talk at bar camp, we really wanted to see um, what the reaction was. And at that talk and then at subsequent talks that we've done, it's really become apparent that it affects men and women or people of any gender and uh, any walk of life, any industry that they happen to be in. It's a really pervasive problem and something that people definitely want to talk about. Yeah, and we were talking before, like, was the original study, like, the, the, the reputation of it having to do more with women than men, was the original study around uh, high-achieving women, or was that, yeah? Yes, the original study was done by uh, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, published in 1978, and it was done specifically with women who had PhDs. So that's where the research started, and then... There hasn't been a ton of research on imposter syndrome since then. And since it started with that specific group, uh, that's where everyone has gone with it since then. But at least anecdotally, we've talked to quite a few men who have experienced imposter syndrome, uh, seen a number of quotes from high-achieving men who have experienced imposter syndrome. There just hasn't been a ton of research. Yeah, and I know that uh, even watching your talk, um, I was like, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm a pretty arrogant dude. I go out and give talks all the time. I have a podcast for, like, no reason. Um, <laughs> like, I probably don't suffer from this, but then when you started listing some of these symptoms, I'm like, oh, I do that all the time. Can you kind of go through some of the sort of you might have imposter syndrome if things that you've, you've been talking about? Sure. Um, Brianna, maybe you can help me out with some of these, but I remember a few of them... Um, one of them is the feeling like you should be doing all of the things. And um, some of us create to-do lists that are a mile long. And the feeling like if we are not accomplishing everything in all facets of our healthy, well-balanced, work-life balanced life, um, that we are somehow failing ourselves and uh, not living up to the standards that we set for our, not only ourselves, but that we feel maybe all of the people around us are living up to those standards, but we're somehow not, which probably isn't the case, most definitely isn't the case, um, but we can kind of trick ourselves into thinking that everyone else has everything covered and, and is, is ticking all those boxes, but we are not. There's also a lot of related anxiety and fear and dread related to either an assigned task or an opportunity that you have before you say, giving a talk at a national conference. <laughs> <laughs> there might be uh, a period where you're procrastinating or over-preparing or doing both. This is where you'll see a lot of people talking about how they're doing kind of productive procrastination. They're supposed to be working on a talk, so instead they cleaned their entire house. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, we'll spend, you know, 40 hours bent over their keyboard, designing their slides to the extent that they're adjusting the font size by <laughs> half a font point. Or this, this may have happened to Amanda and me. It's, it's weirdly specific. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like it happens to us. <laughs> um, I remember one of the symptoms you mentioned that really struck me was um, 
over focusing on criticism. So you could have like five people say that was an amazing, or ten people say that was an amazing talk, and you're like whatever. And then one person says, uh, "I really didn't like this one little part of your talk." I'm like, "Oh, it's the end of the world. I'm terrible. I'm never giving a talk again." Yes, that 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 I've experienced. <laughs> clearly, the person with the negative view is the smartest person in right. the room. Yeah, clearly they're the ones you should be focused on. And I think also it's not even just about focusing on criticism. In fact, you may not receive any criticism on your talk or your deck or your presentation, but any of the positive feedback that you do get, you may be automatically discounting it as, oh, they're just trying to make me feel better. They're not really being authentic. They're not being honest. They don't know what they're talking about. And it's just basically... Uh, you know, people say when you get a when you get a compliment, you should just say thank you. But sometimes, if you are experiencing imposter syndrome, it's really hard to internalize the positive feedback mm-hmm. as well. Well, it's almost like a form of confirmation bias, where you have in your head this theory that I am not good at this. So any uh, evidence that contradicts that, you find a way to make not true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and if you're doing well at things, it just escalates, right? So you do a talk at a local meetup, and people say they like it. You don't believe them when they say they like it. But somehow, despite your own beliefs, you get invited to do that talk at a bigger event. And from there, maybe it's a national conference. From there, maybe it's an international conference. And every single time you go through the same series of self-doubt and discounting the praise that you get, and assuming that you're not worthy because maybe you were good enough to do the local meetup, but you're certainly not good enough to be on this stage in front of 5,000 people. Yeah, and I, I've, you know, I've experienced that myself. And it's like, at what point do you simply say, okay, I have enough evidence to simply acknowledge, yes, I'm good at this, <laughs> right? Like, how much does it take? For me, it took about a, maybe 10 years of people saying I was good at speaking to say, you know what, I, I'm going to say I'm good at speaking. And when people ask why, I'm going to point to the 10, you know, years of people saying I was good at it, you know, rather than like make it be about hubris or anything. Like, is that part of it? Like a fear of, you know, um, you know, f- looking proud or, or seeming arrogant? Or is there some other kind of dynamic, you know, coming into play? Um, I think, honestly, the confidence that people can get over time is a combatant to imposter syndrome, but it can also, it it doesn't mean it goes away, Mm. you know? And I think, um, in anything that we do as if we're doing, if we're speaking for 10 years at different conferences, um, we might feel like we've got that under our belt and it's something that, um, we can handle. But if, uh, if there's a new spin on it or you're trying mm. out a new topic or yeah. you're workshopping a talk and you haven't really nailed it down yet, those feelings can still creep back in. Um, so part of what um, we've talked about as ways to um, really not just push the imposter syndrome away, but to kind of embrace it and, and, to, and, to, and to live within it mm-hmm. um, is to really... Um, allow yourself to, to take those feelings and say, all right, like, what can I, what can I learn from this? How can I learn from my peers? How can I learn from people who may have done something similar to this and Mm -hmm. being able to kind of ask good questions and, um, gain information. And when you workshop a talk, asking for authentic feedback from people, um, and really using that to get better and to fuel your confidence for the next time you do something. 
it might not be as new then. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And is that sort of like the, the alternative to like fake it till you make it? Like what's the sort of downside of fake it till you make it? And then what's sort of the better way to like address or like, as you say, embrace like imposter syndrome? I generally don't think it's a great idea to fake almost anything. <laughs> so part of that comes down to when, when you're faking something, when you're faking that you're capable of giving a talk on a specific subject, it's a, an example that we keep using, <laughs> that you can't really internalize useful feedback in the same way because it, it turns everything into a statement about you as a person because you are presenting an alternate persona that, that's not who you are. And so the feedback that you get is about that person. It's not about your skill. It's not about your ability to craft a story while you're giving a talk. It's not about how many times you say um, or the inflection that you use or any of the other things that you can actually improve. And so faking it till you make it can actually create a significant barrier to you doing well and getting better as you go along. So the alternative to that is to separate yourself from your work a little bit, which I know is a challenge for everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we all have egos. We get wrapped up in the things that we do, especially anything that's a creative pursuit. But if you're able to present that work and take the feedback on the work and take the feedback on your style and look at that as something that you can improve over time, um, then that can actually help you get better and that helps combat the imposter syndrome because you are in fact getting better over time and that dedication to improvement makes you worthy to do mm -hmm. things. Well, it's interesting. It's almost like if you create this false persona and that is like your mode of presenting, any feedback you get is really just fault they're finding with your lie and all you can do is improve the lie. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and that's it's different from having different facets of your personality. Mm -hmm. Nobody's the same person at work as they are when they're at home with just their dog. <laughs> I think that I've seen a lot of conversations people have with their dogs that <laughs> they wouldn't want to get out anywhere. <laughs> right, and so it's it's not saying that you can't have that. That's a really important part of being a person, uh, but. There are some people, you know, they'll, they'll get a voice that's completely inauthentic to who mm -hmm. they are in certain contexts, or they'll just, you can tell that they're not being true to themselves. Yeah. And that's where you run into trouble because then you are actually an imposter. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting too. And, you know, uh, forgive me for going deep, but it's me. Like, <laughs> um, like what that reminds me of is stories of like people who like people of color who have, you know, a certain voice and then they go uh, try to become like a TV newscaster or a weatherman or something like that. And they're sort of coached to change the way they talk, right? Almost to become this different persona because that's what's more socially acceptable. And I guess where I'm going with that is like, is there a certain degree of, you know, social pressure that contributes to, um, to imposter syndrome like you were talking about, like, part one of the symptoms is feeling like you're not living this full life that you're supposed to live. And I feel like we get that, what that full life is supposed to be from society, like society telling us you need to be, you know, super awesome at yoga and have an amazing job and like, like 50 things that no one human could possibly ever do. And yet we feel beholden to that. Yes. 
actually the example that we used for that do all the things um, char uh, characterization of imposter syndrome was a list of 99 things the internet tells me I should do every day, <laughs> um, which is physically impossible. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of us and just people in the world who are consuming media and getting messages um, from the people we know, but also um, the things all around us that we see every day, you're constantly uh, receiving messages that you should do this, you should buy this, you should be this. Um, and even the, the people that we look up to, you know, um, if you're not seeing people in in ads or in TV shows that look like you or sound like you or talk like you, you might feel like to be successful or to be beautiful or to be important, you need to emulate these other people. And that somehow takes away from who you might truly be or your authentic self because you're, you feel like you have to fake it um, to be successful. You literally cannot be that thing. Um, I know growing up, I would sort of like, you know, uh, I grew up in the 80s in the era of 80s action films, and like there's some amazing 80s action films out there, but the heroes were generally white men. So I sort of thought, oh, I guess I need to be a white guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and which, like, by nature, you're good. That's literally, you're going to have to fake it, and you're never actually going to make it because I didn't become white, but there is that pressure to right. act as white as possible. Exactly. And I think that gets people caught up into that feedback loop of trying to be something they're not and then getting, you know, if, if people, like as Brianna said, can recognize if you're not being your authentic self and, um, and they can sense that and they might not yeah. trust you. And uh, really what we're advocating for is the opposite of that, to be your true self and to express that to people and to be open and honest and then empathetic to all of the other people out sure. there who are maybe struggling to be their true selves or struggling with something that they might have to do but not know how to do yet. Um, and using that empathy to kind of, you know, we're all in a community together and being supportive of one another versus just kind of being out for yourself and trying to put on that mask yeah. of, um, of who you think you should be. Yeah, I think it feels like there's definitely like a through line of like, like selfishness to like continuing to like fake be be inauthentic versus sort of more community approach of trying to be in other words if you want to um hard to have community with, without being authentic and hard to be authentic and not then you know reach out to the community um but i'm curious uh in you know spending like years looking at and talking about imposter syndrome did it help or hurt with your own experience of imposter syndrome I would say that I don't have less imposter syndrome, but I'm better at dealing with it because I'm, I now have the tools to specifically recognize that, okay, I am currently in a procrastination phase <laughs> and soon I'm going to launch into an over preparation phase for this task. And this is just how it is. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to do. I can make any necessary preparations for it, rearrange some plans, whatever it might be, uh, and more comfortably deal with my own feelings. I can have the feelings without being the feelings. I can recognize, all right, I'm anxious about this. My stomach's a little upset. I always can't carry anxiety in my stomach. I'm not particularly hungry right now. That's okay. 
This does not mean that I am a failure. This does not mean that I don't have any place being here. Somebody else thought that there was a reason for me to be here or there were just no barriers to whatever the thing was. Say I make my own event and then it's mine and I can do whatever I want with it. But having the ability to just recognize that as being part of the process, that mm -hmm. is almost part of my creative process right yeah. now. And if I don't get that feeling, I'm actually a little bit concerned. Let <laughs> <laughs> add to that just a little bit. Um, I was just going to say, I think for, for us and then for a lot of the people that we have had in our talks and that have maybe shared at the end um, their personal experience, I think for some people, they live their, they've lived their entire lives or their adult lives not knowing how to name this feeling. Mm. And then just by naming it and acknowledging that it exists and, and, and seeing a little bit about, okay, you might still be living with it, but you can now that you understand what it is, and you can recognize it for its, you know, its true form. Mm -hmm. It you don't have to. It doesn't seem like such a dreadful thing anymore. It's something that you can work with, and you can work around, and you can, like I said, like you can embrace it and and just figure out how to how to cope with it more. So then, feeling like you need to constantly push it away, um, or or to be fake, or to really have a ton of anxiety surrounding new things or, or working in your, in your field. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's a common theme with cognitive bias is it's almost never about eradicating it because by its very nature, it's just how your brain works. Like you're not going to eradicate it. So to your point, it's sort of like a recognizing this is a natural, normal thing. So you don't have to freak out like that. That's sort of step one, <laughs> right? Cause that's part of the problem is the, you know, anxiety around it. Like, should this be happening? And am I the only one this is happening to? But then also to your point, like recognizing it as part of the process almost gives you a little more ownership of it. And like, it's just what to expect. And then you can sort of build around it. Um, when you were um, like researching uh, imposter syndrome, like when and how did Dunning-Kruger come into play? Like how did that fit into what you were learning? I found an image on Jessica, sorry, Jessica Hagee's website, This Is Indexed, where she puts- I love that site. It's so <laughs> great. She, she just makes the most fantastic little images that explain complex concepts, which is one of my favorite things in general. And she has a drawing mapping imposter syndrome and the Dunning-Kruger effect against each other, which I would say is the first time I was conscious that I was thinking about the two of those things and the way that they interplay. Mm -hmm. So it's quite, it's quite a paradox to look at the two of them next to each other and try to figure out how you're going to be able to tell if you're even remotely competent. Yeah. And recognizing that feelings of competence are probably a decent indicator that you're not very competent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's also like the curse of knowledge too, right? Like I think there was like a, a Socrates quote. There's a, th it's a, one of the interesting things about this effect is that people have been talking about it for thousands of years, literally. So um, like Socrates is a quote around it that's basically along the lines of like, the more you know, the more you don't know. You know you don't know. Um, and there's another one here somewhere that I can't find right now. But, um, but people have been talking about it for a very long time. 
Oh, uh, Confucius has one. Uh, real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. And that, so part of the problem is I think like the nature of knowledge itself is that it's ever expansive. It's not a fixed thing. It's not like just, you know, a set of Pokemon cards and catch them all and you're done. <laughs> Even Pokemon keeps expanding. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but so that's, so you're already kind of fighting a losing battle of like diminishing returns. Like the more you know, the more you realize, oh wow, the world is really, really big. No, you don't, really big. I'm never gonna know it all. The dumber you are, the more you think, oh, it's this tiny little thing and I probably already know most of it. Right, so already the nature of knowledge is working against you, but I think the other thing that um, uh, the Dunning-Kruger study showed, and just to clarify, when they were looking at people trying to A, rate how good they were at tasks, and then B, actually do the task and see how good they were, um, the ones who thought they would be awesome at a task were generally bad at it. The ones who thought they weren't gonna do very well um, were actually very good at it. And it was a lot of like, because they were good at it, they kind of thought it must be easy and this may something, be something everyone can do, so they didn't rate themselves as very smart. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, and again, this is like a theme with cognitive biases, we are terrible at self-assessment, period. Like we are really bad at knowing what we're good or bad at, what we know or don't know, what actually happened or didn't happen, like uh, what, um, uh, uh, why we even do things. So it shouldn't actually be much of a surprise that we aren't very good at assessing our competence around things. Like I feel like that's, you know, go back to the community thing, that's kind of why we need each other, <laughs> is because on our own, we're terrible at actually knowing like if we're good at a thing or not. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that is the importance of um, connections in our lives because we can, and it's, I don't think it's even just about our competence, but about our sometimes our worth mm. and our um, the value that we bring to things because sometimes you might feel like you're not needed or you're not wanted in a certain place. And um, luckily, the people around us can remind us that, yes, you are valued, you are needed, you are competent, um, you are good at your job. Um, and having that positive reinforcement is helpful. I think um, one of the unfortunate things is people, um, specifically if you're working at a company that might not have supportive people in it, mm -hmm. um, and you could feel a little, um, a little bit on an island, um, it and you don't have those supportive resources of people reminding you that you're good at what you do. Um, I think that's when imposter syndrome or um, knowing what you don't know can be the most difficult because you don't have uh, the positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, I know that the uh, original study kind of framed it as a gendered thing, and then when you anecdotally started talking to people, it found it very much wasn't a gendered thing. But do you think that it does affect women differently than men or is you know, pronounced more, or is it basically because of societal pressures? Um, or, or is it pretty much across the board, like if you got it, you got it? So I'm just gonna quickly answer this and I'll pass it to Brianna. Um, what I had seen in our talks, and then um, additionally I, I had done um, a talk on my own at um, Mount Sinai uh, Medical School, and I heard from a lot of people in that audience, and I think we had heard from people in our audiences, um, really anyone 
that doesn't fit the norm mm. of their industry or of the people they see in leadership positions mm. um, are more sometimes more impacted by imposter syndrome. So it's not just gender. Um, uh, it could be um, if someone is uh, LGBTQ, mm -hmm. it could be if someone is uh, a minority race that is not well represented in their industry. Um, it could be a combination of those things. Um, but we have heard from people um, of many different facets of identity that could make you more inclined to have imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. This is hard because there's not a ton of research on it. So mm -hmm. this is largely anecdotal. Sure. But I have found that it's almost universal from the conversations that I've had with people, but manifests differently. Mm. So particularly in American culture, because most of the people I've talked to about this um, have grown up and currently live in the United States, I've talked to a few people about it who live elsewhere um, and come from separate cultures. But in, in the United States specifically, there's a very harsh tendency to get men, male-identified people, to suppress emotions and to act confident, while women are treated as though they're supposed to be more open about things they're not sure about more apologetic for not knowing things and just more apologetic in general. Mm -hmm. And so the conversations that I've had um, with male-identified people generally focus more on, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing and I can't tell anyone. Right. And women will get to the point where they feel as though they should be able to do things but at the same time, should they be the specific person to do that thing? They know a lot. They're not really sure they know enough. And they're more willing to talk amongst themselves about it. Mm -hmm. um, speaking in, in broad strokes, of sure. course. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, that kind of makes sense with the whole, like, again, in isolation, it's a lot harder to cope with that than if you have some kind of support network. But even right down to if you do feel like you don't know what you're doing, what does your culture tell you to do about that as a man versus as a woman? Mm -hmm. For sure. And you can definitely see that in people in leadership positions mm -hmm. as well. I think if most people spend some time reflecting on bosses that they've had, they can tell who is insecure mm. and how that manifested yeah. in their workplace. Yeah. <laughs> and being insecure and not talking about it or even... I wouldn't recommend talking about your insecurities with subordinates, for example. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, having someone to talk to about that and acknowledge it can actually make you a much better employer. Yeah. Um, we, we could have a whole other podcast about the outsized effects of insecurity and leadership. <laughs> um, but uh, going back to the cultural thing, I was, you know, this season of the podcast has been very much about um, social biases and what's interesting about them is that they do tend to have differences culturally. So, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of ego-oriented ones play out bigger in individualistic cultures than in collectivist cultures. And so I did a little bit of research into, like, how this plays out uh, along those same lines. And it seems that in collectivist cultures, again, broadly speaking, you know, Asian or Eastern, not Western, um, 
it's somewhat less pronounced if only because failure is viewed differently. The idea that um, if you fail, it is an opportunity to learn and then be of better service to the collective, to the larger group. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, a, like, did you have you run across any, you know, research or anecdotal evidence to suggest that imposter syndrome play imposter syndrome plays out differently in different cultures? Um, and uh, there was a second part of that which I forgot. So let's just concentrate on the first part. <laughs> I have a specific story about this that I've never connected to imposter syndrome or Dunning-Kruger effect before. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> when I was in college, uh, I went to a college at a place that is very adherent to an honor code that involves not talking about grades ever. Mm. They're not publicly posted. The only time that you can discuss them with other students is when you've specifically asked permission to speak with them about grades and performance. Right. Okay. And that's large. It was a women's college. This is largely related to competition and feelings of inadequacy and the idea that you're there as a student. You're supposed to be competing against yourself, not against your classmates. Mm -hmm. While I was in college, I did a one-month program where I was teaching English to students with a few of my college classmates in China. And while we were there, the person running the program released a set of figures to us. And that was the preference score for each of the instructors from the students that we all could see. It was a list of how we ranked. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Which was, first of all, not compatible with the culture that I grew up with, let alone where I was going to college. And the contrast was stark. Mm. At the same time, it seems to me as though it would be a little bit harder to have imposter syndrome in a culture that has such obvious quantitative feedback <laughs> in your face all the time, right? Because we had a conversation with the person running the trip after that. Mm -hmm. and, and she's like, oh, yeah, that's just what we do here. And we're like, yeah, that's weird and jarring and nobody <laughs> feels good about being the last person on the list or even in the bottom half and what did you do wrong? And so I think if anything, that might create like anxiety and fear in, in a different way, sure. right? It's all of it's out on the table and everybody yeah. knows, uh, which is the opposite of imposter syndrome, right. which is you're an imposter yeah. and they can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you're no longer an imposter, you're just what you are, where you rank, and that's yeah. it. You, you are what you are, which is the worst, and we all know it already. <laughs> You're in seventh place. <laughs> yeah, and I have to imagine that how, how a culture or a, an, an environment uh, like views failure probably impacts the degree to which imposter syndrome um, manifests. Mm -hmm. Because if you are in an environment where it's like, you know, uh, no, actually we think failure is good, and it's knowledge, and you should, you know, I mean, I'm uh, my kid is in a school right now that, um, and I'm going to blank on the name of the educational um, paradigm that they use, but it is this sort of, you know, cognitive um, behavioral therapy thing where it's like, you know, don't focus on what you don't know, focus on what you could learn, right? Like all these sort of basically like you're talking about before, like these different triggers, but have a different response to them as a way of kind of, you know, embracing the imposter syndrome. But it does seem to be um, this movement towards saying, hey, instead of thinking of failure as some sort of reflection on you personally, just think of it as here are things you don't know yet and you will get better if you choose to apply yourself. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that I was going to um, 
bring it back to, I, I don't know if it's even just about the kind of macro culture of your uh, your nation or your state mm. or your even your city, but the micro cultures that we're all in. Mm. Um, so your son's school, for example, if that's um, kind of the the day to day and where he's being supportive and taught um, on a daily basis, um, he gets to come home to a great supportive family. It probably is encouraging him in the same way. Um, but if another student is going home to a family that is um, more puts more pressure on sure. the student or um, looks at failure differently mm-hmm. and looks at not knowing things differently and, you know, throwing around the word stupid or um, that I think can contribute to f- these feelings um, even manifesting greater later in life. Mm. Um, and I know, you know, if over the years you've been in different work environments that were at different levels, it might impact who you are today and how great um, the feelings of imposter syndrome might be based on where you are. Cool. Um, so we're just about out of time, but before it goes, is there anything else like you'd like to say about imposter syndrome or any, do you plan to continue talking about it or are you all imposter syndromed out or uh, sort of where, where were your thoughts on that? We actually, um, I've told you yet, we were asked to speak um, to a group of female architects Mm. Um, in January. So put that on your <laughs> calendar. Um, it's breaking news. You're finding out about yeah. it here first. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say um, if if you're up for it, I think I, I enjoy continuing to talk to people about it. Like mm-hmm. we were saying before, um, sometimes for people that haven't heard about it before and they hear what it is and they yeah. can identify it, um, just helps even yeah, that and, totally. and being able to kind of share their experiences. Um, so I find it, while it might be kind of a niche topic, um, I've really found a lot of value in having these conversations and I hope to continue to get the opportunity to. Awesome. I enjoy talking about imposter syndrome. I have to say I do feel some imposter syndrome about talking about it, particularly <laughs> because this is not my life's work. Mm-hmm. Right, I am not an imposter syndrome researcher, so I I enjoy talking about it, and I think that there are more people who would benefit from learning about imposter syndrome than there are real imposter syndrome professionals who will ever be able to go talk to everyone about it. Right. So I think that you know continuing to do this is important and also really cathartic and helpful for the people that attend the talks. So we'll, we'll do it again in January. <laughs> awesome. So glad to hear it. And, and along those same lines, I've sort of like, oh, right. I'm not actually a cognitive uh, therapist or didn't go to school for psychology. And I've been doing a podcast for, you know, a year and change now about this stuff. So, yeah, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you all uh, for coming out uh, for the Cognitive Bias podcast. This is David Dylan Thomas and Brianna Morgan and Amanda Clark-Renzulli. We will see you next time. Thanks.